You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone. Today, we've got Henry Shuck, who's the co-founder and CEO of Zoom Info, formerly discover.org, which is basically subscription-based sales and marketing intelligence. It helps you what well, you get accurate and actionable B2B contact and company information to accelerate the growth of your sales and marketing teams. I've actually used it in the past and it's been great and I continue to use it. I recommend it to other people. Henry, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. We were talking kind of pre-show that you grew up in nearby Pasadena. So we're one city away, basically. I grew up in Arcadia. And so let's start with the story first, because I think you are, you've yeah. stuck through it the whole way. And I think that evolution, you don't usually get a lot of people that can do that. So let's talk about how you started uh, discover.org first. Sure. So I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to college at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And after my first year in college, I ran out of money and I needed to find a job. I sold my PlayStation on eBay for 300 bucks nice. with enough to get me rent for one month. And I stumbled into a company that was an early entrant in the SaaS market. And they were selling data on the information technology buyers at companies to other technology sales and marketing professionals who were trying to sell to them. That business grew over five years from 300,000 in revenue when I got there to just under 5 million but it was really just me and a couple other college kids. And so there wasn't much of a business there. So I left, I went to law school at Ohio State in Columbus. And after my first year in law school, we founded Discover Org to basically compete with the company that I had worked for in college, but in a kind of a different segment. Put $25,000 on my credit card. My co-founder put $25,000 on his credit card. And that's how we funded the business and got our first customer kind of five months later. And then the business grew organically and profitably over time. We brought on our first institutional investor in 2014 when the business had just over $25 million of ARR. And so we had grown it without any outside capital to $25 million of ARR. And it was doing you know, $12 million of EBITDA at the time. And then we continued to grow the business organically. We bought the company I'd worked for in college. We acquired them in 2015. Then we acquired another business and put it together with Discover Org. We brought on the Carlisle Group as another private equity investor in 2018. And then we took Discover Org, acquired Zoom Info in 2019, and then took the Zoom Info name and then marched towards an IPO. We IPO'd in June of this year, and that's kind of where we are today. 1,300 employees all across the globe, 15,000 customers, all sales and marketing and recruiting focused professionals. Fascinating. I mean, there's so many questions I have. I, first of all, congrats on your success. Um, you. And I guess for the first five years, because people are wondering like, oh my God, he went public. He's, he's done all these acquisitions, these crazy things. I'll never be able to do it. But can you speak to the first five years? Yeah. How did growth go? Totally. How were revenues? Yeah. The first five years, a lot of, uh, a lot of imposter syndrome, <laughs> a lot of, oh yeah, great. Let me get this over to our accounts payable or receivables department so they can send you an invoice. And that was just like me typing up an invoice like <laughs> over here. So it was a lot of like faking it a little bit until you get there. And, but in the early days it was, I split my time half and half, half focused on the product and half focused on sales and marketing of the product. So my day would be split, like building up our database, adding new features to the platform. And for half the day and the other half of the day, I was spending time 
you know, marketing the product to sales and marketing leaders, setting up appointments to do demos of our product, thinking about who I needed to hire to be able to handle sales or continuing to build a product. And, and so for the first five years, we went 300 grand, 800 grand, 2.7 million, five and a half million. In our fifth year, I, we did 15 million of ARR. And so the business kind of took off really after that fourth year. And this is a subscription business. And so we had the blessing of having a set of customers who were paying an annual subscription. And so as long as I serviced them well and gave them a product that was of really good value, I could start the subsequent year with that as a base of revenue that I could build on top of. So that was the first five years. Got it. I love that. And so first five years, you go up to 15 or maybe it's, I guess, I think you might've said when you hit 25 or so, you decided to bring on investors. What was the trigger for that? Because you already had a great business. You're doing great EBITDA. Why? Yeah. Well, two things really. One, all of our net worth was tied up inside of the company. And so even though we had EBITDA on paper, we were investing that back in and saving it for a rainy day, basically. And so you kind of felt a little bit shackled by the decisions you would make because every decision you made had like this like oversized impact on your personal net worth. And so bringing on a private equity investor gave us an opportunity to have some of those dollars come secondary. And so it served as like a mini exit of some sort. And then also, and probably the bigger reason is you knew you were building something big, but you didn't really know like where it was going to go or if you really knew what does 50 million look like and what does 100 million look like and what don't I know and is there, are there people we can bring in who can help us sort of see our way to that. The biggest thing, by the way, in that process is really learning what great talent looks like. And when you're like a very small business and you hired like, whoever you could find. And then you worked really hard to make those people great and do the things that you sort of were doing, but you like gave it to somebody else. And now they were doing sales and you gave it to another person. Now they were doing sales and you gave marketing to somebody and they were doing marketing. What you got to this point where like you had the opportunity to bring in world-class talent in all of those different areas. But you didn't really know what world-class talent looked like. And they did a great job of helping us sort of see what talent looked like. They did a good job of telling us like, look, I know you like this person in your company, but this is not going to get you to the next stage. And so you have to make a decision, Henry. Do you like them enough to keep the company from being like what it could actually become? Or do you want to take a step and you want to make a hard decision and drive the growth of the company? We were talking right before we got on this, Eric. They were a great nudge. It was like they would constantly nudge me in the right directions on these things. And if there was an issue in the company, they would poke their finger right in it. Say like, this is an issue. You should fix it. You know, it's up to you, but this is an issue. And then it really drove us to like, look at the whole world that way. Anything that was a problem, we were going to dive right into and try to figure out how to make best in class. That's awesome. And so I guess you starting this with your co-founder, you guys didn't really have, I guess you were accountable to each other, but now you raise money, you have people on the board now. What was going on through your head? Because now it's all of a sudden it's like, oh man, I'm being held accountable by other people. Like, how did that make you feel? How did you react to that? I didn't really have a problem with it. I think I always kind of held myself to higher standards than even the board was holding me to anyways. We were 50-50 partners. And so what it did give us was like a third party who would also say like, 
no, that is actually an issue. And so even though like I may have thought one thing and my co-founder may have thought another thing, it was a tie-breaking vote. And so where like in the business, you could be completely stagnated because you guys are just like, oh, I think this and you think that and now we're not going to do anything. You had a third party there who would go, nope, you guys got to go fix that. And so it was a good tiebreaker. Got it. I think what might also be helpful for the audience too, because you've went through that transition of having people that were good. They got you from point A to point B, but they're not necessarily going to get you to point C. Um, yeah. My whole philosophy is, is it's hard to demote someone. So once you promote someone, you can't take them down. You probably have to let them go. I don't know what your take is on it. But the other thing I would say is, what did you have to do? How did these conversations go? Because some people might be wondering like, hey, I might be dealing with this right now. How do I deal with it? By the way, everybody is dealing with this right now. Everybody is dealing with this right now. I'm dealing with it right now. It's just a matter of priorities of when I'm going to like handle something. And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking like for the last three months, I felt like my director of marketing, my director of sales, my director of engineering wasn't going to make it. Guess what? You're three months late. Nobody ever lets somebody go and then goes like, ah, I just did it too early. I wish I would have waited three more months. What everybody says after making those decisions is that it was three months too late, six months too late, one year too late. You know these issues. And so you sort of have two choices. You can one, dedicate an over, like a big amount of time to trying to make that person into the person you need them to be. But guess what? You're running a business, you're running a team, you probably don't have enough time to dedicate to get them to the place that they need to get. And if you're in this position, they're probably not scaling anyways. So like your coaching is not going to make much of an impact. Now, to make yourself feel better about the situation, you should probably dedicate some time there to see if you see any improvement. It's almost certainly not going to work. And you should just let the people go who are holding your business back because they're holding you back. And then you should kind of be unemotional about it. Business in these types of situations should be unemotional. There are people who are fantastic operators from startup to 20 million or startup to 10 million or startup to 5 million. And they're so good at startup to 10 million, but they hit 10 million and they just don't know the gear to go to 10 to 50 or 10 to 40. And that's okay. Why are you trapping them in a world that they can't be their best and their best self? Let them go find another business that's a startup and let them grow that to zero to 10. And that can be their motion that they're really great at. But you're trying to trap them in this world where like you're trying to get them to be somebody that they're not. You should just be okay with everybody having a role that fits for them and fits for them at your company. It is very hard to demote, Eric, you're right. Mm -hmm. Um, it takes a really mature person to go, you know what? I love this company. I love my leadership. And if the chess pieces have to move around the board and right now my chess piece is over here, as opposed to where it used to be, I'm okay with that. But it's like one in a hundred. And you're listening to this is probably not the person you're thinking about. Yep. What if they say, Hey, Henry, um, I want to stay at zoom info, but like, I'd like to learn. I think I can learn to become a CRO or VP of sales. Can I learn? Can you just let me do it? Like I've proven myself. 
So first of all, you probably, once you make your decision about this thing, you should not leave a door open for that conversation. You should just go to the conversation and go like, hey, I've decided this is not a fit anymore. Like you have been a fantastic addition to this company and we couldn't have gone here without you, but we're gonna bring in somebody new to run the organization. And so like, here's your package or whatever it is. And you know, I'll be a great reference for you in the future and I wish you the best of luck. Like you should probably not open the door to like, the only reason you're opening that door almost always is because you feel bad about it and you think it'll go over easier if you leave a door open. It's just not going to. Yeah. Well, like you said earlier, when you bring emotions into it, it starts to drag out and you just want to cut it quickly. So have no emotion. I love that. So you talked about people maybe failing to scale. And sometimes I don't meet a lot of people on the show that will go from literally startup to public company CEO, right? So how have you learned to scale as a leader? Like what have you done specifically? Yeah. I mean, specifically, I think like what I try to do is anything that I'm not good at, I try to become really, really great at. So like, for example, before we started the process of going public, I didn't really know what went into going public. I didn't really know what a roadshow was or how to talk to an investor or how to craft the story right, how to write an S1, how to do a non-deal roadshow and a roadshow and all of these different things. But I just like went into that process going like, okay, I'm going to learn as much as I can about what a really successful roadshow and IPO looks like. And I'm going to make sure that like I'm constantly learning about that and I can deliver a great IPO as a result and I can be best in class that way. And so I guess the biggest thing I do is one, I listen to the business and where the business is telling me I need to be better at. And if I'm not great in that thing, then I'm trying to learn as much as possible about that and constantly pushing myself to like learn new things and then being great at those things. Got it. And so the counter argument, someone else might say, well, you know, Henry, I read all these books all the time and they say, you know, you should only focus on what you're good at and, you know, ignore the rest and just delegate it to other people. Now, I would kind of poop my pants if it's like you kind of delegate the whole IPO roadshow thing to somebody else because I feel like you can't really delegate that. So anyway, feel free to respond. Totally. There are things that are on your plate and whether you like it or not, they're of the most critical importance and you have to do it as the CEO. And those are the things you have to be great at. I used to be super involved in sales. I like basically own the new business sales number. I manage the pipeline, the conversion rates, the SDR teams. But now I have a chief revenue officer who's way better at that stuff than I ever was. And so I don't like spend nearly as much time on new business sales as I did in the past. And so that's something where I have an incredible leader, but there's always going to be things that are CEO kind of only tasks or they're CEO only tasks for some period of time. And so I have an opportunity on some tasks to get really good at it, know what really good looks like, and then make sure whoever's coming into that role understands what really good looks like. And when I feel like they are being really good at that, I don't care about it anymore. They go and run it. There's a book called The E-Myth. Have you read The E-Myth? Yep. I read it way early on. And that's kind of the concept. It's like become a subject matter expert in something, train somebody else to be a subject matter expert in it, and then get it off your plate. 
Yep. I love that. And actually, I mean, this actually ties in with uh, what we were talking about before. You mentioned it a little earlier around the pebble, right? Earlier, I was saying, look, as a leader, you have to constantly make sure that people are aligned, moving in the right directions. You can call it vectors or whatever, but it's, you're constantly like, nudging people. And then you talked about the pebble, like, you know, putting a pebble in their shoes so they feel the pain. And so I guess it kind of relates to this, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of my big jobs today ends up being aligning the organization to go in the direction that I think is strategically the right direction for the business to go. And what that takes often is to go into the different operating groups and say, hey, are you sure this thing is right? I don't think this thing is right. Like, and here are the reasons why I don't think these things are right. You should be paying attention to that thing. And what I'm trying to do when I do that is like, can I put a little pebble in your shoe about this thing that's not going well? And you got to walk on that pebble and like it starts, now it's irritating your foot. And at some point you need to untie your shoe and get that pebble out. But I need to make sure that like where I see opportunities for improvement, I'm putting that pebble in people's shoes and I've hired good enough people who in a short period of time want that pebble out of their shoe. Yeah, you're the professional pebbler. That's first. <laughs> That's funny. And so one thing you've said before is that I'm, I'm sure you still believe it is when people say that's the way it's always been done, you think it's the most detrimental statement to a company's success. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to grow, it necessarily means you're going to be different a year from now than you are today. And if you're able to drive your business to growth without changing anything, but let's say your sales process, that's great, except that all the other things you left behind, let's say you run a software company, your platform, your customer success organization, the way you onboard customers, like all of that is going to catch up to you. You can't just like keep doing everything exactly the same way you've always done it. Otherwise, you're never going to grow. Growth requires that you change the way you've done things. And if anybody's sitting inside their business and going like, we are the very best in the world at this thing, it's almost certain that you're not. Or that whatever the thing is that you're best at right now is going to be fleeting. You might be the best in the world at it for a couple of months or until somebody knows that you're the best at it and then they reverse engineer the thing you do. And so that best is short-lived and you have to constantly be iterating on it to be even better and better and better and better. Like we've always had a really efficient go-to-market engine where we can bring customers in at a really low customer acquisition cost and then drive a long-term relationship with them on our account management side. If you came to us five years ago, every investor who looked at us five years ago would have told you, this isn't like the most efficient go-to-market engine I've ever seen. And if you come to us today, they will tell you the same thing, but the engine looks completely different than it did five years ago. And if it looked the exact same way it looked five years ago, it wouldn't be the best go-to-market engine in the world today. And even though we were proud of what we had built there, we're just constantly iterating on it to make it better and better and better. Got it. And there's a lot of marketers on this podcast. So when you talk about growth engines, my ears perk up. So what are some things you're doing that make your growth engine really special right now? Yep. A couple of things. The first thing is specialization. And so the way our sales process works is marketing generates 15,000, about 15,000 hot MQLs for us every month. 
Those funnel into an inbound team, sales development reps who set those meetings to appointments for account executives who take them to close. But that process, number one, is super specialized. Like when the lead comes in, it gets routed to an inbound sales development rep who is most likely to take that industry, that title level of the person who filled out the form, that type of company that uses that type of software that has a certain number of sales reps and convert them into a demo. And then when it gets converted to a demo, we're sending that demo to the account executive most likely to close that deal and close it at the highest ASP. And so we built a bunch of data science through that motion and a bunch of data that we bring in from the Zoom Info platform. As soon as you fill out a lead on our website, you give us your name and your email address and we append in your title, your location, how many sales reps you have, what CRM and marketing automation tool you use, where you're located, what industry you're in, whether you've gotten funding. And then we use all that information to route the leads to the right people. That's a major secret sauce. And I've done some other webinars, I'm sure they're on YouTube, where I I go really specifically into how we do that. And so it's probably a decent watch. Got it. I love that. So working towards wrapping up here, just a couple more questions from my side. Earlier, we talked about the evolution as from startup CEO to public company CEO. Are there any behavioral changes you can speak to as a, hey, like at this stage, I had to learn this and I just completely shifted. I just, I'm trying to get some practical takeaways for people as they evolve. Totally. One, when we brought in TA, we hired a chief financial officer, which I was fairly against for a while. I just, I didn't think we needed one. And then we brought in a chief financial officer who basically took the entire business and broke it down into metrics, like every single thing. And he came in and he went, look, this business has a rhythm. And Henry, you kind of have a feel for the rhythm because you can look out and talk to people and know what's going on. But even now as it gets bigger, you're going to lose that feel. This is the rhythm of the business. Like this is the dashboard. This is the amount of leads we're creating. These are the companies that are coming up for renewal. This is the health of those companies. These are how many deals are in like this stage or that stage. And this is the actual rhythm of the business that we can all look at and know when things are going well and trending in the right direction, when they're going poorly and trending in the wrong direction. And then we built sort of all of the ways that we manage the business by those metrics. And data is available on everything you're doing in the business. And so we run the business today very much by those metrics. As a public company, we know every single day how many renewal deals we need to get in, how many new business deals we need to get in, how many phone calls we need to make outbound, how many appointments we need to set, how many leads we need to get day by day, by how many docu-signs we need to send out day by day by day by day. And then we get a pacing email every day that says, here's what happened. Here's where we are on the month to date pacing. And like, here's what you need to do tomorrow. And every day we're looking at those metrics. So what I would say is in any business of any size, you have metrics that are driving the success or the failure of your business. You should be figuring out how to get those metrics every day and understand anomalies in it and actions you can take to affect those. I love it. All right. So final questions are related to learning. First of all, are you in any founder groups like YPO, EO, anything like that? I am not in any founder groups today. Got it. Do you have like other founders that you typically hang out with, speak to? I'm just wondering if there's like a, a mastermind or a group that you typically learn from and then kind of, it's almost group therapy sometimes. Yeah. So I have like an executive coach that I talk to twice a week. 
So I spend a lot of time with him. And then actually I, at this size company where I spend a lot of my time is with my chief human resources officer, who is kind of like therapist, kind of like helping me figure out the talent across the organization, which really drives the success of the company. And so I spend a good amount of time with her, a good amount of time with the coach. And then I was in, an, in a CEO group last year, um, but then the pandemic hit. And so I haven't come back. God, we, that, there's a whole nother conversation to have around the going public during a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic. But yeah, we can save that for another day maybe. Yeah. So what is one new tool that has made a big impact on you? So it could be like a Aura Ring, it could be like Evernote. What would you say? One new tool that's made a major impact on me. That is a good question. I bought a tablet. It's called a Remarkable, uh, which is basically you can write notes and it changes them into text. But really what it's really valuable for is all my notes are in one little thing. It writes like paper, so I enjoy writing on it. And so I can go in and say, show me all the notes on M&A that I've ever written and go look at those. That's awesome. How about what do you regularly consume to get better as a reader or a leader? What do you read? You know, for example, I follow a lot of entrepreneurs on Twitter. What do you do? Today, I read a lot of like analyst reports about companies. And so about public companies, every public company gets like a set of investment banks, write Analyst reports about them. And so I read those because it kind of, once software companies all kind of feel the same. And so analysts are talking about like new things that a company is doing or new areas of growth or how they're transitioning to the enterprise. And so I'm reading about how other companies are doing that. And then the ecosystem's pretty small. So if I see like, for example, on my board, I have the CEO of Smartsheet and I read an analyst report a couple months ago that said they are like spectacular at growing in the enterprise. And so they land a company and they're able to grow it in a really big way. And so I called him and was like, hey, I would love to talk to the person who runs your account management team to figure out how they're doing that. Because I just read this analyst report that says you guys are best in class around it. So that's usually like I start with an analyst report. And then if I want a conversation, it's usually not that hard to get one. Got it. These analyst reports, I'm assuming you're just going to the investor report section on these public websites. So it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So you can read like the earnings call transcripts and I do that too. So every quarter a company has to get on the phone and tell their investors how things went, a public company. And those are really interesting. I read Salesforce's earnings calls between 06 and 09 when they grew from 300 million to a billion in revenue is like that trajectory was important to me. And so I wanted to hear like how Mark Benioff did that and what he was focused on. Those are publicly available. You can just Google earnings call transcripts. The, the analyst reports are a little bit harder to get at, but I think if you like searched hard enough at, you know, Morgan Stanley report on Slack or Zoom info, you could find it. Got it. Final two questions. What is one must read book you'd recommend? I love The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. It's interesting. It is the most recommended book on this podcast. How often do you reread it? I've only read it twice. And I've every read time it someone- twice. Got it. I read it twice. I read it the first time on vacation. Big mistake, by the way. Because I read it on vacation and I was like, oh my God, I got to get back into the office and like get rid of these people and fix that thing. And so not a, not a vacation book, yeah. um, but a great book. I also recently read Ogilvy on advertising, great book. which is a 1970s book on advertising, but a lot of the theories are still the same. It's really actually more on like content writing, mm-hmm. um, which is a, it's a great read. 
too. Cool. Final question. What's the most compelling thing you've read recently? The most compelling thing I've read recently. The most compelling thing I've read recently. I mean, I read every analyst report on Zoom Info. There are 16 banks who wrote 50 page reports on Zoom Info, all the things that are good, all the things that are bad. And I read every single one of them and basically wrapped my head around like, what are public market investors looking for us to be great at? Where are they not convinced that we're great? Where are they not convinced that there's a big opportunity? And what are the metrics in the business and the areas that I have to be focused on to make sure I can tell a compelling story there? I love it. All right. Well, 800 pages right there. That's good stuff. Henry, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Henry L. Shuck. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find there. Or my email address is just henry.shuck at zoominfo.com. Perfect. Twitter's great. I'll add you there as well. Henry, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.